Let's take our Bibles together and turn in Holy Scripture to the second book of Kings, chapter 14. We'll read there the verses 23 through 29, and then we'll turn ahead to our text for this morning is Jonah chapter 1, and since all of today and also next week, Sunday morning, I hope to be in your midst and spending some time with this prophecy. This morning we'll spend, we'll read just the first three verses, and this afternoon the rest of the chapter to verse 16. But first we'll read 2 Kings 14, the verses 23 through 29. Here the word of the Lord speaks to us as follows. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did what did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war, and how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath, what had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel. Then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. Let's turn now to the prophecy of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, we'll read, as I say, the first three verses this morning as our text as well. Page 1067 of your pew Bibles, which I believe are the same as mine. Jonah 1. Starting at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. (laughs) 
After the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing in response from Psalm 40, stanza 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if you were asked to give a one-word summary of what truth the Reformation reclaimed, you may very well mention the word grace. With a few more words, you might say that the Reformers impressed upon the church salvation by grace. Still today, as heirs of the Reformation, we know that doctrine so well. And yet it is one thing to know the doctrine of salvation by grace, but quite another to know the grace of the doctrine of salvation. You can know that you are saved by grace alone, and yet not appreciate how rich, deep, High and wide is that grace that has saved you. In other words, you can know God's grace without really savoring it. The book of Jonah brings us face to face with God's grace for evil people. The Lord is concerned about that wicked city, Nineveh, and he intends to do something about it. And yet those of us who have read the book will know that the bulk of it focuses on the back and forth between the Lord and his reluctant prophet, and not so much on the interactions between the Lord and Nineveh. God is concerned for the evil of Nineveh, but he's even more concerned about the prophet. Nineveh's evil is obvious to all and is surprisingly easily healed. Jonah's evil is subtle, and it needs to be exposed. But the task of him getting healed proves much, much harder. The book of Jonah is about broken people in need of God's grace getting mended. Jonah was a messenger of God's grace. And now God was sending Jonah to be an agent of God's grace to Israel's enemy. And yet clearly, Jonah wants none of it. Will Jonah get restored? The pagan sailors learn to worship the true God. The wicked Ninevites repent of their evil deeds. Will Jonah get mended? It's a difficult question. Somebody once wrote, the story of Jonah is simple enough to delight a child and complex enough to confound a scholar. The book is, sorry young children, and perhaps not so young children as well, the book is not about that great fish who's mentioned in only two brief verses, but it's about the Lord's unlikely grace for broken people and as self-righteous prophets, stubborn resolve to resist that grace. Jonah wants a God of his own making, a God who simply smites the bad people and blesses the good people, when the real God, not Jonah's counterfeit, keeps showing up, 
Jonah is thrown into anger or despair. God is going to teach Jonah through painful experience that everyone needs mercy from God. And that means that it's God's decision who gets it and who doesn't. Which is a lesson Jonah himself is shockingly so slow to learn. Throughout the narrative, Jonah is surrounded by creatures that run to do the Lord's will. The waves, the winds, the sailors, the fish, the Ninevites, the worm, the sun and the east, east wind. Only Jonah stands against grace, stubbornly refusing to accept the reality of the God whom he claims to serve. And so before we launch into the narrative, that raises the question, is Jonah's story also your story? Sure, we're not prophets, we're not called to preach in alien cultures, and we'll probably never find ourselves living and praying inside a large fish, and if we do, I suspect we won't make it out alive. Surely you can't deny that we are all each of us, grace resistors in our hearts. We rebel against God's mercy and compassion. We too are sorely reluctant to accept the reality of the God whom we claim to serve. And so with that in mind, I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. The Lord calls the prophet Jonah to bring a message of grace to Israel's enemy. We look at the messages surprising recipients, and secondly, the messenger's selfish response. So first, the messages surprising recipients. Opening lines are always crucial, aren't they, in any story? But the book of Jonah opens in the most conventional of ways. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, We've read this countless times in books of the prophets. The same word comes to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, and many others. These familiar words tell us that Jonah was a prophet to whom the Lord spoke directly. He belonged to that privileged group of men who stood in God's presence, listened to his voice, and passed on to the people what they heard. Jonah was a preacher of the gospel. And that was already well before God called him to go to Nineveh. According to what we read in 2 Kings 14, Jonah's ministry took place in the time of Jeroboam II in the 8th century BC. Jeroboam II, I think we know, was a sinful and idolatrous king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And that was the main problem that faced the prophets of the Lord. God had given Israel so much. He had cleaned them up, given them homes and vineyards and crops, and had given them every form of grace and mercy. And in response, they turned up their noses at it all. So in the days of Jeroboam II, the Lord had called Jonah to bring a message to the northern kingdom of Israel. 
Jonah had to call king and nation to repentance. But his message from the Lord was also one of undeserved grace. It was a message given to renew Israel's hope. We find that message of good news in 2 Kings 14, verses 25 through 27, which we read together. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hefer. For the Lord, it continues, saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. But the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. All of this underlines that Jonah is in a remarkable position. He could announce and then also witness the grace of God. Israel didn't deserve that. Their wickedness deserved untold wrath. And yet God was gracious to them, extremely. He gave Jonah a message of grace, of promise to pass on. The borders of Israel would be restored to where they were at under King Solomon. Israel's going to enjoy prosperity. And Jonah had a front row seat to God's faithfulness to his promise. It came to fulfillment. And so Israel, during the reign of Jeroboam II, reached unparalleled prosperity in the history of the divided monarchy. Israel was growing in population, in industry, in territory, and commerce. Israel had done nothing to deserve this, but our merciful God hand-delivered his blessings to them that they would repent But now, God was calling Jonah to bring God's word to some surprising recipients. He's not told to go visit the unfaithful people of God. No, after the very generic, conventional opening to the book, we read, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, why would this have been so surprising? For it was not unusual for an Old Testament prophet to be sent to speak words against Gentiles. Already in the covenant with Abraham, God had promised to bless those who bless Abraham and his offspring and to curse those who curse them. That curse was often announced through the prophets. We need to know a few things in the first place about Nineveh. Nineveh was the great city, the capital city of Assyria. It was located about 600 miles northeast of Israel. It was established in today's northern Iraq. For those days, it was massive. 
According to chapter four, verse 11, it had more than 120,000 people. For an Israelite, it was a name that brought shivers up the spine. It would make any Israelite who knew anything about foreign affairs very angry. If there was any nation that Israel feared, it was Assyria. Assyria was one of the most cruel and barbaric and violent empires of ancient times. In their writings, they depicted in grisly detail their brutal acts to their captives. They tortured their members by dismemberment, their victims rather, by dismemberment, decapitation, stretching, or by flaying. All of this while their captives were still alive. They burned people alive. Uh, Their methods of post-battle tortures were awful. And they took great delight in it. For over 250 years, their enemies, including Israel, feared and hated them immensely. So there was plenty of wickedness in Nineveh to judge. But with this background, you can just imagine the thoughts that might have been uppermost in Jonah's mind when he received the commission from God, go to the wicked city, preach against it. And so Jonah is heading to Israel's biggest enemy. We need to understand, Jonah went on behalf of Israel. Israel was God's special nation. God promised to direct his grace specifically toward this nation. They were his prized possession, the apple of his eye. But God, you see, had always intended that Israel would be a means of blessing to all nations. God said to Abraham, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So Israel was set apart, yes, but not isolated from the world. She had to be distinct in her worship and in her lifestyle for the purpose of bringing glory to God's name before all peoples. And if you take a look at the world map at that time, you can see how God gave every opportunity for this to happen. Israel was at the center of trade routes, commercial highways and byways, merchants, businessmen, also political leaders couldn't help but pass through Israel, see Israel, notice Israel in how she lived. There were many opportunities for Israel to rub shoulders with non-Israelites. God strategically put Israel at a crossroads and instructed her, live holy, demonstrate my love and my grace. Everything she did was supposed to point not to herself, but to her covenant God. God's grace in her life was supposed to radiate, shine brightly. And now comes Jonah's calling. A surprising calling. 
Jonah, prophet of God, on Israel's behalf, is called to pack his bags, head to Nineveh, to warn it. Israel had broken the covenant of God and therefore was not serving as a witness to all the nations of the earth by obedience to that covenant. Yet the Lord doesn't tell Jonah to prophesy against Israel, but Nineveh. And on behalf of Israel, it is to be a message of grace. How can I say that? Tell the people of Nineveh, your wickedness has been seen by God. He's going to wipe you out. Where is any kind of grace in that? Well, there is no reason to send a warning to someone unless you want to give them a chance to avoid judgment. God's warning was intended as a call to repentance. The blessing of Abraham will be carried to the nations, for Israel was to see God's grace toward them. Jonah knew this would happen. Chapter 4, verse 2 shows that Jonah knew the grace of God. And he knew that the message God gave him to pass on to the Ninevites was a message of grace. Jonah knows that when God exposes our sins, calls us to face our sins, his end goal is to show his mercy and thereby to save. Jonah knows from the start the purposes of God toward Hayden Nineveh, that his message was to be a message of grace. Hence, Jonah's refusal to deliver that message How could a good God give a nation like that even the merest chance to experience his grace? Well, what do we see in God's action here? The surprise that we discover about God's grace is that he bestows it on his enemies. Israel had their own gods And God was actually later going to use Assyria to judge Israel, to bring Israel into exile. Assyria was going to be an agent of God's justice against his own people. But surprise indeed, he still comes to them with the message of his grace. Isn't this what New Testament, also New Testament preachers were sent to do? The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 11, verse 11, that it was because of the Israelites' transgression that salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. In Christ, God has displayed his saving grace to distant peoples throughout the world, to God's enemies. Yes, that means formerly you and me. What are some of the things that the Apostle Paul said in Romans 5? While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the powerless, for the ungodly, and for the sinner. That's you and I, all three times before we came to be in Christ.
And so the surprising recipients of God's grace and God's message of grace are the Assyrians for sure, but it's also us today. Every Sunday again, we are recipients of his message of grace, which comes in the preaching of the gospel. And that's God calling us, now as his children, now as within his covenant, calling out to us, in his mercy and grace to repent and believe, to trust and obey. Well, if verse one was conventional, verse two surprising, then verse three is downright shocking. So we come to our second point where we see the messenger's selfish response. Well, like Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, and all the other prophets we know, Jonah gets up to go. But unlike every other prophet we know, he doesn't go where the Lord sends him. Instead of going to Nineveh, he fled the exact opposite direction to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He abandons his calling. Prophets in the Old Testament had all kinds of reactions when they were called. Isaiah was devastated. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Jeremiah was somewhat intimidated, actually quite intimidated. I'm only a child, is what he had to say. Ezekiel was angry, bitter, overwhelmed. Only Jonah has the nerve to say, forget it, I'm out of here. And so he takes off for the port of Joppa. And at first, as we'll also again talk about this afternoon, God's providence appears to be in Jonah's favor when he finds there a ship leaving for Tarshish and willing to accept him as passenger. He buys a ticket, gets onto the boat, and judging by the distance to Tarshish, some estimate that this journey via many ports could have taken as much as a year's time. So when Jonah left, when he paid his ticket, he's likely to have left with a considerable amount of money, but he had, he had to have his own way and pit himself against the almighty God, no matter the cost. Now we don't quite know where Tarshish was. It was a port city located somewhere on the coastlands in the Mediterranean west of Palestine, somewhere on the western coast of modern day Spain. But the fact is, this place was the farthest known geographical point. It was in the complete opposite direction from Nineveh. Called to go east, Jonah goes west. Sent to the big city, he buys a one-way ticket to the end of the world. Why? We're not told Jonah's motives for fleeing. Maybe he thought this military and cultural powerhouse is not going to listen to someone like me. 
Or maybe he thought, you know, the prophet Nahum has already prophesied that God would destroy Nineveh for its evil. So why are we wasting our time here? <clears throat> it's possible to Jonah that this mission didn't make any sense. Others suggest that he ran because he was afraid of being flayed or decapitated by the Assyrians. I highly doubt it. We don't get the impression that he's a man easily afraid of people. His past obedience saw him bring the word of the Lord faithfully to Israel's unfaithful king, right to the top. No, Jonah runs not because he's afraid of failure. Instead, we find out in chapter four, verse two, that Jonah ran because he knew God was a God of compassion and he didn't want the Ninevites to repent. Jonah was afraid of success. He had this sneaking suspicion that God might pardon that city. <clears throat> After all, if God simply wanted to wipe out Nineveh, why send a prophet? Why not just send a couple of angels to check things out and see if there are more than 10 righteous men? Jonah doesn't want his preaching to be effective to the point of bringing the heathen Ninevites in repentance. Jonah and Israel feared that God's grace for Nineveh would come at Israel's expense. Only Israel receives the Passover. Only Israel enjoys the temple of the Lord. Only Israel is privy to the words of the prophets and God's covenant of grace. They wanted to keep it to themselves. So in response, he turns in his badge and his gun and he turns from God's word. You see, Jonah's problem is ultimately not with the Assyrians, but it's with God. That's what verse three is getting at when it says twice that he rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. He didn't agree with the Lord's way of dealing with people in the world. God's will and Jonah's will collided. Jonah had his own thoughts on how things should be. And so yes, he resigns from his commission as prophet because of irreconcilable differences with his employer. He fled from the Lord's presence. Notice the inconsistency in his thinking. Jonah never resigned when God told him to preach a message of grace to Jeroboam II, even though he was an evil king. But that was different in Jonah's eyes. <clears throat> the Lord was permitted to show grace to his own people, even when they didn't deserve it. But for the Lord to show grace to outsiders, that was too much. God's will collided with Jonah's sense of what kind of God he should be. He doubted the goodness, wisdom, and justice of God. Sound familiar? 
Is this not why we too so often turn our backs on God? Because the Lord refuses to fit our assumptions of who he ought to be. He does things we don't think he should do and he doesn't do things we we think he should do. And so we are tempted to flee from him because obviously God doesn't know what's best for us. We have certain high expectations of God, but then our experience of life is often low as we face many difficulties. We come into circumstances that we didn't hope for, and our reaction is to run away from a real relationship with God. For in a real relationship, we actually have to engage with a God who refuses to be our slave who refuses to conform to our wonderful plan for his life. Are you possibly disappointed with the circumstances of your life right now? God's not giving you something you've wanted. Could be a job, could be a relationship. Or maybe he has given you a job or relationship but they're not living up to your expectations. What do you do with that frustration? You see, typically it's not just your circumstances that you're frustrated with, it's God. God has the power to change your circumstances in a flash, but he's not done so. That's why disappointments so often distance us from God. We become angry because he's not given us what we wanted in life and we think he doesn't know what's best for us. And yet this very frustration itself may be the means by which the Lord is gonna give us what he wants, which is so much better. Are you going to trust the Lord your God to be God even if he asks you to do something that doesn't make any sense to you? Most of us find trusting God in those circumstances intensely hard. But if you are not willing to trust that God knows best when he contradicts your desires, then you aren't really fearing the Lord. You may be keeping the Lord handy as an accessory in your life, that you trust to make things work out the way you want, or you keep him handy as a listening ear to pour out all your woes to. But then you're not in a real relationship with him. If you are in a real relationship with the Lord as your God, then he has to be able to be different from you. But maybe for you it's not so much your circumstances that frustrate you as it is your sanctification. You're struggling with an ongoing sin that hurts you and those around you. You've prayed and you've prayed for the Lord to take it away but so far he's not seen fit to do so. How do you respond? Well again, your struggle is not so much with your circumstances but it's with God it's not so much with your sin but with him 
And that's why in the midst of sin, we so often run away from God, distance ourselves from him. We may still be Christians on the outside, but in our hearts, there's no affection. We all go through this. The basic problem is that I am not willing to accept the reality of the God I claim to serve. I'm happy with him as long as he's working on my agenda to fix the things I want to have fixed. But I get very frustrated when he's actually, in actual fact, what's happening is that he's working on me. This is us. This is Jonah. This is Israel. Not willing to accept the reality of the God we claim to serve. But the nature of God's grace is that it's for him to give as he sees fit. For his will is different from ours. And that means that grace is his to give to whom he wants. If we get this wrong, and we often do, we will think that God just can't ask anything of us. He owes us. We tend to think that if we believe the right things, read the right books, go to the right church, sing the right music, then we've obligated God to bless us. That's not moving toward him in gratitude, but is instead a way of trying to be sovereign over God. The message of God's sovereign grace has to be our chief delight. And so we need to understand it from the heart. Understanding God's grace leads you to be patient, to forgive, to love, pray, out of sheer joy, glad surrender, and ardent love. Jonah's selfish response endured into the days of the Lord Jesus. Our chief prophet came to preach the gospel. He preached it to tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, sinners. He preached grace. He displayed grace. He shared it. And Israel rejected him. But he was the obedient, faithful prophet submitting to his father's will with joy, even though it would mean a cruel death on the cross. He knew what God had said in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer. But our Lord didn't run from the will of the Lord. He didn't express frustration at his circumstances. He replied, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. He went to the cross with the message of grace and favor. He obeyed his God who sent him from heaven with the call, go to Nineveh, Hong Kong, Rome, Amsterdam, Pretoria, Owen Sound. Go to my creation and call people to repentance and faith. Christ obeyed 
because he knew that God is faithful and that all his purposes are holy and good. Christ delighted to do his will. That delight in God's grace put him on the cross. He died for his enemies, for those who rejected his grace. He died for us so that we could receive heaven's mercy and grace that we so desperately need. Marvel at him, would you? Perhaps your heart is hard towards the Lord. Maybe you are frustrated at his refusal to submit his will to yours. Maybe at times you think you do know better than he does. Consider again how much you have received from the sovereign God who loves you. Will he not ensure that your circumstances, your relationships, even your stubborn sins will work for good in your life? Rescue or refuge is not found in running away from the Lord, but in crying out to him for the strength to follow his will, as hard or as confusing as it may be. So as God's people, you've been commissioned by the Lord to revel, to bask in the beauty of his grace and his love. And rest assured, you can never outrun him or escape his perfect plan for your life. Submit to his will, cherish his grace, and know that it is sufficient for you. Amen.